fun getting around, saying hello, how you doing? I see the smiles, I see the, the fist pumps, the, you know, all that stuff is great and wonderful. Welcome again uh, if you're joining us uh, online. We're good to have you live today. Uh, it's really neat to uh, have you tuning in wherever you're tuning from this morning. Perhaps unlike us, maybe your feet are kicked up, maybe you have a coffee in your hand or a treat of some kind, or maybe you're out in the wilderness in the cool rain watching online, maybe, who knows, but we're glad to have you here as well. So this afternoon, we're going to continue in our series ongoing devotion. You know, I'm going to ask this thing that Bible school profs always said not to do, and I've joked about it before, but have you been encouraged through our series so far? Yep. That's good. We got one yep. That's good. <laughs> Get it louder, Don. <laughs> That's awesome. Tony says yes. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, last week, before we jump into our uh, scripture verse for today, last week we were looking at hearts on fire. I don't know if you were checking your pulse midweek and wondering, you know, checking the beats per minute, if your heart was racing for Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure. But we were looking at what a life drawn close to Christ looks like, that when we draw close to him, that our hearts will be on fire, resonating, combusting, if you will, with love for him and love for others. Because the Holy Spirit ignites our, ignites our heart. Amen. Do you ever feel like sometimes you wake up in the morning and there's something about that day, something about that moment as if the Holy Spirit has flipped the switch, thinking today's going to be a good day. Today, the Holy Spirit's going to use me wherever I go. Amen. And so today, we're going to look at how, again, there's been this explosive growth in the church. Things are happening. The followers, the apostles, their hearts are on fire for Jesus. And it's also that fire that's allowed them to learn these lessons, be poised to bless others. But there's something to remember, something that Jesus said before he went. And we're going to do a quick flashback. Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And sometimes I have said, you know, Jesus is up on his throne. He's watching over us. He's working in our hearts. And he's on his throne. And I've heard recently someone say to me, why do you use that terminology, throne, throne? It seems kind of antiquated. seems kind of old-fashioned. Well, Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 7, just throwing out there a little nugget today, verse 49, it says this, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? It's a wonderful reminder that Jesus is on the throne, that he's coming back, that he's singing over us on his throne, and he's cheering for us. I gotta love that image that whenever, you know, when you devote your life to Christ, he's your biggest cheer section. He's cheering you on. He's on his throne like Jim's saying, yeah, Jim, way to go. Jim, man, the way that you were caretaking at, um, oh, forgive me, Jim, the, the place as a janitor, custodian, shout it out. Housekeeping. Housekeeping, thank you. And at the certain Jim, Young Men's Association, right, YMCA, that's it. He's at the YMCA and he's saying, Jim, I'm pleased with you. The way that you're serving, the place looks immaculate to the point where Jim's received favor at work. 
He's received favor at work. People take notice. But he's able to say, hey, my heart's on fire for Jesus. My heart's on fire for Jesus. And that's a big reason why I'm serving in this way. And so we're going to look at here today in Acts chapter 6, that as we're seeing people's hearts are on fire, they're learning lessons as they're ministers, of, as God's agents, that there's tremendous growth, and yet with growth comes some difficulty at times. And so the title for today's message is Intentional Leadership. Intentional Leadership. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says this. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Perneus, Nicholas, and a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Remember that part. Had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And you got to love verse 7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And the large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Right off the hop, i got to say and remind us, you never know who's watching. The way that you, you live your life, the way that we conduct ourselves, someone's always watching. We've learned that in good ways and bad ways, I'm sure. And we all have testimonies of that fact where maybe we, were, we got up on the wrong side of the bed and people were like, ooh, it's <laughs> a different kind of temperament for Andrew today. But people are always watching. We can see here that good things are happening. Last week we looked at how even in the midst of a affliction and persecution, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because their hearts were on fire, the Holy Spirit was able to stir them out of those difficulties and lead them to witness. And so here we have another witnessing point. How to deal with a situation. How to deal with a circumstance. Sometimes in Christianity we can feel as if we won't have any problems. There is theology out there that if you're a believer in Christ, that everything is wealth, health, and happiness. And we're not ones who, who believe and affirm only those things, yet we do believe God blesses us and he touches our bodies. He was beaten for our infirmities and for our sickness, absolutely. But here we see there is much, much more to our witness in the midst of obstacles. When's the last time you faced an obstacle? And you thought, oh, this is a big one. How are we going to handle this today? Maybe it was at work. Maybe you have some supplies coming in. I'm trying to keep it generic for cover many different people's backgrounds here. But you have some things coming in. And maybe you believe and think that those supplies, those, those, the procurement of those supplies should be used in a certain matter. But yet maybe your colleagues and others think, no, no, I think it should be used in this way. And a disagreement develops. 
Whatever it is, all of us have experienced times where we have to face difficult situations. So off the hop, as we jump into this, our first point this afternoon is that in the midst of obstacles, in the midst of the problems, whatever shapes or sizes, that God can use all things to make our calling and ministry purpose evident. God can use all things to make our calling and ministry purpose evident. I think we can all agree, if I was to probe the audience, kind of like, and who wants to be a millionaire, or pull the audience, as they would say, would say, hey, you've probably had situations where God has used your life story, the situation in your life, to bring your calling to the surface. Maybe in a situation where you had these words of, of affirmation or even words of encouragement to someone, and you realize in that moment, oh my goodness, God has given me words of knowledge to bless another. Here we're going to see, as we've read in the passage, that the apostles are realizing ministry calling, they're realizing ministry purpose in the midst of this problem. Now we know there's good problems of church growth, amen? For example, when the place is packed, and any kind of mean, doesn't just have to be a Sunday afternoon, the good problem is, my goodness, Brad, where are we going to fit everybody? Maybe some people have some rock climbing equipment. We could fasten them to the ceiling. It's pretty high in here. Where there's other points where we're saying, wow, there's a lot of young families which we're praying for and believing for. Where are we going to put all the children? Are we going to have enough volunteers to put together the activities to minister to them? These are good problems. And on the other hand, we have bad problems, bad issues such as some people like in this passage, they maybe feel that not everything is equitable. There's not appropriate distribution of the resources going on, and so a complaint is brought to the attention of the apostles. And I think this can help serve for us for this afternoon, that no matter, even when a critique or a problem arises, it's not necessarily the problem that's really the issue, it's how we respond. And that's something that I've been learning over time. It's how you respond that matters. Today, um, you know, we were a little delayed getting in here, but it was an honest, honest, um, you know, miscommunication there. But we had to be generous in the moment. You know, I could have flew off the shelf being like, this is crazy. We, we need to get in here and set up and to be on time so we're ready. It's going to cut into our setup process. But we're like, no, it's okay. We extended grace. And the response was Good. Amen, team? Our response was good this afternoon. And it's in that response that we can bless each other. So let's go to verse 1. Again, we see the problem that's going on here. The apostles are experiencing this important matter, the complaint that widows, not just any widows, but the Greek Jews, they feel that they're being overlooked. And if this isn't handled as something that can become a big problem, we've all been there. We've all been in the situations where if you don't address the issue, if you don't raise the subject and speak to it, it's going to fester, it's going to bubble up, and eventually <laughs> explode. And we've seen that in church life. I mean, I, that's definitely not foreign for me. I've experienced it different places, um, whether big church, small church, big leadership team, small leadership team, it is always the same. And how we respond is important. And so here we see the apostles they give us a great exhibit that when this is happening, they don't say, well, would you just quit complaining? 
We're doing our best. Are you sure you have all the facts? Now, the Bible does say to, you know, a wise man gathers all the facts, but a fool is one who doesn't gather all the details. But yet in this situation, there is a legitimate complaint that's happening on here. And the reason why there's this issue, I did some research this week. I, um, one of the times where I actually did pull out a commentary because I wanted to know the biblical historical reason of what was going on in the region. There's a lot of things that we can pull out when we read a passage. A lot of it's right at the surface. But here are some pieces that you wouldn't otherwise know. So we do understand that Pentecost has happened. Pentecost has gone down. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. People have come from all over the place for the festival. And they end up hearing the message, the marvelous acts of what God is doing in people's lives in their own language. So Greeks are hearing it in their language. It's not just in Hebrew. So all of them are in this region. And they've come to faith as we're believing here that by our passage, they've come to faith and there's many different reasons why they would be in need in the first place. So they've arrived because of Pentecost, but why do they have these needs? One of the reasons could have been that they've been disavowed by family members. And this is something that resonates because even here today, I'm sure we have friends and family members that because they believe in Christ, perhaps family has disowned them. Or maybe they're not as close as they once were. We've all had those type of situations, I'm sure. I can think of a few right off the top of my head of how difficult it's been for them. And yet in this situation, in historical Palestine with these Jews, whether you're Greek or not, it was customary for the families to take care of one another. It was customary for them to take care of one another. And yet Jesus said, hey, in this world, you'll have trouble. But don't lose heart, for I've overcome the world. But he also said this in Matthew 10, verse 34. He said, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Look at verse 40. The one who welcomes you welcomes me. And the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he is righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives a cold cup of water to one of these little ones because he is disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. And so when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. So here Jesus is saying, look, when you come to follow me, when you lay down your life, when you surrender things, the ways in which you used to live, customs and traditions, it's gonna rub people the wrong way. Some people may not understand it. They may not be able to go along with you and so they may disown you. And so here we have these widows. They don't have anyone to take care of them because they've either been disowned or there is no one left to take care of them. 
And I've already said that it's the role, the duty of family to take care of one another. The thing I didn't realize, and I was going through my notes back in Bible school when we looked at um, New Testament, Old Testament surveying extensively, um, didn't see anything in there about spouses not being able to retain property. I found that very interesting that the wives, women, if you were living back in the biblical times, if your husband passed away, you would not inherit his assets or his property. It would go to the man's sons, if he had sons. If he didn't have a son, it would go to the the son within the family, a relative. And so here, the widow would have really depended upon family generosity. I found that outstanding. Mom, could you imagine? Everything's just entrusted to John and I to take care of you. Of course we would, but you have nothing. It was quite something, thinking, wow, okay, I'm glad that some things have changed, and yet in some parts of the world, that still does happen. So these are reasons why there's these widows in need. And so I went searching through Scripture, and I came upon this passage, and I'm sure many of you have read this. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and here the Apostle Paul is encouraging young Timothy in how to give leadership for people to take care of one another. I think this will really resonate hit home. In verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, Support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. The widow who's truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, when I read that, I thought, worse than an unbeliever. DW, can you imagine that? Worse than an unbeliever. Remember what Jesus said. If you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? There's a, there's a standard. There's above and beyond, I believe, that's applying to the community of faith, to the children of God. Here Paul is emphasizing to Timothy, this is the way. This is the way. And so there's another reason why these widows would have been there. Pentecost has happened. Jesus, right, has been on the scene. He's pro- proclaiming the kingdom. And he talked about the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, that he would return. And so some would have generally been anticipating this return. Could you imagine? They're thinking, wow, you know, I got to get to Jerusalem because the Son of Man's going to return. I want to be there for that moment when he comes on the clouds in blazing fire and glory with his angels. And so they've reallocated, relocated, I should say, to Jerusalem as they wait for Jesus to return. So now we have all of these believing Jews, both Greek and native Jews, in this small region all together, and there's limited resources because they're still growing. Now, thankfully, they're growing in number and the resources continued to be pooled but there's a demand on these resources. So legitimately, there could have very well been appropriate claim here that the widows of Greek Jews are being overlooked. So whatever the reasons are, I was looking at this and I just couldn't help but note the leaders, the church leaders were essentially writing 
an SOS in the sand, but in a good way. They're writing out, we need help. We need help. We need additional leadership to administrate this system of aid. It's like their EI of the day. You look today, if you've ever filed for EI, you know, you could talk to someone on the phone or you can, now, now, nowadays you can go online and go through the whole process, but there's been administration that's been put in place to make it as easy as possible, Isaiah, for you to claim that unemployment. But yet in this time, they're still ironing out all the details. This is still a very new concept for them. And so point number two this afternoon is be attentive and diligent with the problem. Here we can see in verse two, the followers, the early church leaders, they're being attentive to the problem and diligent to bring the solution. Here it says, select from among you seven men, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Because it's important that they're all on the same page, amen? It's kind of like this. Imagine you're going on a trip. You're going on a staycation. That's like a really popular thing right now, staycation. The government just put in this uh, tax break for those who decide to uh, go on vacation locally in Canada. So Premier Ford has put this announcement out. So you've gone out with your friends. Maybe you go to a big house on a lake. Okay, they got canoes, jet skis, you, you name it. I don't know, DW, what do you like to do? Play some pool, run through the woods, hunting? I don't know, I'm just throwing it out there, putting it on the spot. But whatever it might be, you're all in this house. But then you realize, well, we all need to be fed. What, do we, what are all the activities we're going to do while we're here? And so maybe you start to pool resources and supplies and you work on meal prep and activity planning. But then you soon to come to find out, well, not every family is the same. Maybe one family likes to eat dinner at 6 o'clock. Maybe some like to eat dinner at 9 o'clock. Maybe activities are hunting and skidooing, but maybe some just like to read a good old-fashioned book. And at times you can feel like you're foreign in that house because you're not all thinking the same way. You're not all on the same page. And so here you have to love, in the midst of this planning and the procurement, that the leaders of the early church realize we need people who can take point on this to make sure that the problem is not exemplified any further. Otherwise, you're going to have a mess. You're going to have a mess. And so here they're being attentive to the problem. They're trying to, you know, make a way. Look at verse 1a. It says that there was obviously a language barrier because it says that they're uh, Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. So Greeks and Hebraic. Have you ever felt like you were out of place because you didn't speak someone's native language? I remember my dad and I went on a, a trip with my hockey team. Uh, I think it was my Bantam hockey team sometime in high school. I think it was in grade 10. We went to Europe for international competition with hockey, and it was incredible. I mean, the scenery, the people were wonderful. The architecture was incredible. Tony, Don, like England, my goodness. The history, it was so rich and exciting. The White Cliffs of Dover and all these different things. And you're walking around, but from village to village... The dialect would change a bit. Customs, even of culture, would change based on village to village. 
Sometimes the thing to be would be to go to the local pub at a certain time. Other times it's we want the fish and chips or there's a whole bunch of different desires, customs. But yet when you go over to Germany, which we did, everything's totally different. I remember we were in Germany that they wouldn't put their dairy, their, their cheese, their milk and those things, meat in the fridge. It'd just be out on the counter all day, all day and night. I thought that was, that was different, very different. But they didn't have all the preservatives in that that we had. And I remember walking the streets of Germany, incredible shopping district because everything, unfortunately, was blown up in the war. And so everything was brand spanking new. And we're walking these streets and there's all these different dialects and tongues. I'm there talking to dad and I said, dad, I feel like really small right now because I don't know their language. And I remember him saying, well, imagine what it was like on the day of Pentecost. Because it's fun. My dad and I would have these conversations about the Bible and talk about, he likes to use situations and circumstances, teaching points. He says, how remarkable is it the Holy Spirit was able to come upon those who were believing to speak in those people's languages. And so we got, started getting on conversation. Well, imagine we pray and say, God, give me, the, give me the language, the tongue of these Germans or other people. Wouldn't that be amazing? And of course, that didn't happen, but I had to, I thought of this story and realizing that while I was there, I fell out of place. I kind of fell out of touch. And I didn't know how to relate with the people of those cultures and customs. And so I can imagine in some way, shape, or form how the Hellenistic Jews must have felt coming to Jerusalem. This isn't their place. They're essentially really foreigners, although they are Jews. This isn't home for them. And so they're bringing a legitimate complaint because perhaps the ones who are administrating it don't resonate with them or they don't relate to them. You know, we're accustomed that when you're going about business or you're shopping, when you meet someone that speaks your language or is similar to you, it's easy to strike up a conversation. And, you know, through that conversation, well, maybe you, you buy a coffee or whatever it may be, you're closer to them because you have similarities. But I know first and foremost from living in the city, when I didn't have certain things in common with people of different background, language and such, I wouldn't put in all the effort to really get to know them and their customs. Does that make sense? And so here, there's a good problem of how will the early church followers, the leaders, the people, how will they meet this? Will they rise to the occasion and meet these widows' needs? Will they meet their needs? And so they came, they developed this plan, this concise solution, and have to believe that the Holy Spirit was with them in this. The Bible says this in Psalm 37, verse 23. A person's steps are established by the Lord, and he takes pleasure in his way. I find tremendous peace and reassurance in this verse. That the righteous steps, the person's steps are established by the Lord. He takes pleasure in our way when we are working according to his way. And so as the followers are putting this solution into place, there's something here to highlight that delegation is important. If you look around, even with this church plant, you know, Andrew is not doing everything. I definitely don't want to be jack of all trades, running and doing everything. The desire from the very beginning is to delegate, is to bring people and get them involved. And so the word 
uh, used here in scripture for deacon in the letter to Titus and Timothy regarding leaders, deacons, the Greek word means runner, messenger, and servant. And they're working on behalf of the authority of the ones who have commissioned them. And so here we have these seven men. They're Greeks. Think about that. Seven men who aren't native to the area. They're Greek Jews. And they've been delegated to give leadership to that. Why would that be important? Why do you think that would be important? I don't believe they were doing this just to, you know, shake it up. Sometimes in the business world, people are like, well, we need to change things up. And someone might eloquently ask, Brad, well, well, can you explain to me why we're making some changes? Well, you know, just for sake of change, it's nice to change it up. That's kind of common today, right? Well, here I don't believe it's just they want to shake things up. It's definitely not just due to optics, but rather it's on the side of being woke, the positive side of woke, I might add, to realize that there's an injustice here. There's an injustice that has gone on and they want to address it. And so these Greeks would know their own country, men and women. They would speak their language. They would know what hits home for them. They would understand their customs. They would understand their needs. They would vary in different ways, even to the native Jews of Palestine. So I found that really fascinating and reading and studying this. And so it brings me to point three, do the right thing, look around. Do the right thing, look around. And so with this, even this church plant, to make it really practical, when we began this work, I asked God, Lord, lay on my heart and those that you bring into the leadership circle, those in whom that you would have serve and be part of this ministry. And so he began laying people's names on my heart to go and have a conversation, to bring them into the fold because I believe this story highlights for us that when we're willing to bring people in, when we're willing to look around and see the giftings and talents of those around us, we're able to maximize ministry potential and opportunity. Imagine for a moment, very practical, you know, Brad and team, if I was really trying to do everything, do you think it'd be successful even from the the setup to the whole nine yards? (laughs) Not at all. It would just be a big, big show and it'd be pointless. But when you can bring people in and get involved, get them involved, something wonderful happens. You're able to take ownership. Ownership is a wonderful thing. So here we see in this story, this is happening. The early leaders, they're showing us the importance of expanding the seat at the table. The seat at the table. I've said this from time to time. They're not suffering from Saulitis. You know, Saul, King Saul, when things are going well in the kingdom of Judah, well, young David starts to rise up the ranks. He goes out and he slays slays Goliath, the Philistine giant. Instead of championing David, being like, you're our champion. You defeated the giant. A seed was planted where he became jealous of David and wanted to push him out from the table, wanted to take the seat from underneath of him so that he would fall. But here the early church followers are giving us a great posture where they're showing us it's important to bring people in. And so I've already said that they're Greeks. They understand their own people. And the purpose of this, you have to love, the devotion, the reason why they did this was genuine. 
Looky here where it says in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole company. Now you might be thinking here, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I've seen this somewhere. I've seen this movie. They're just being lazy. Maybe that's something you thought, like, why, why would they remove themselves? And yet, thankfully, we have this statement, we're devoting ourselves to prayer and to the word. Thankfully, this wasn't a matter of them being lazy. I can't believe that they were uninformed either. If email existed, if technology like we have today existed then, you better believe they'd be CC'd on every email. They'd be in the loop. They'd be aware of what's going on. It's like probably when DW's at work, and I don't know, I'm just putting it out there, DW, if this is, this is wrong, then talk to me after. But, you know, when DW, you're doing work with Quick and you're putting things together, I'm sure you're CCing and letting your, uh, those above you know what's going on, but you're not talking every second, every waking moment of decisions that you're making, but they're in the loop. They're in the loop. I remember when I was working at Medigas, you know, we wouldn't talk to the, what's the word for the CFO, the operating officer of the business every day of getting permission for things or how do we allocate, you know, our, our mileage and that, the, the reimbursement for gas and all these different things. But he would be in the loop on all the things that were happening logistically throughout the day. But he wouldn't make every decision. He would have managers in place for that. So here, the followers, they've put managers in place so they can focus, they can maximize ministry potential. Let's take a flashback for a moment. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 5 and in that moment the followers of Christ, they were put in jail and the angel breaks them out. Do you remember why the angel broke them out? In verse 20 it says, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. The purpose, their ministry focus was to share and to minister the word. The angel didn't say, I've broke you out today so that you can administer all the resources for those who are in need. Doesn't make that need and that unimportant, but that wasn't their ministry focus. That wasn't their purpose. Look at Acts chapter 242. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer and to prayer. And so point number four, where this really resonated, where it sat in my heart for myself was this, know your motivation. This really encouraged me, Andrew, know your motivation. Here the story shows us that their motivations were clear. We're committing ourselves to sharing and ministering of the word and to prayer. It doesn't mean they weren't going to be praying but they realized that in order to be faithful to the call as ministering agents, they would have to delegate. But look at this passion, this zeal, as uh, expressed to the believers in Thessalonica. Paul writes this in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. And so they're realizing, we just need to get them the word. Give them the word, and the word is going to transform them. Christ, who is the living word, is going to transform hearts and minds. We need to share. 
We need to share and minister the word. And you can imagine that would take a lot of energy. You may have heard pastors, preachers say on a Sunday after they preach, later in the afternoon, they probably tell their spouses, honey, I'm exhausted. And that does happen. There's times where you just want to kick up and you just take a power nap. I think in the charismatic church, Pentecostals, we would call it the Pentecostal power nap because of all the expended energy. And so here you can imagine that if they were doing and running around and doing everything, that they would tire. Fatigue would set in. And you know when you're fatigued, your effectiveness goes down. You can become asleep at the wheel. And I think a practical takeaway I want to leave with us here this afternoon is when we look at this example They hear what the apostles are saying is they're realizing that this is their devotion. This is what they're committing themselves to. But we also don't want to use it as a scapegoat. Sometimes, you've probably heard it said, and I'm checking my own spirit here to make sure I never go into this vein, is we use it as a scapegoat or a vehicle of excuse to not get involved or to ignore the Holy Spirit. I've heard fellow colleagues, I'm not putting naming any names or trying to... Um, you know, cause a ruffle feathers or cause waves, but just to be honest and genuine, that there's times where leaders have said, you know, I'm, I'm just more comfortable in this wheelhouse. I'm going to remain in my office and prepare and admit, prepare myself to administer the word. But Jesus says that we're all ministers of the gospel. And so there's something to be said about all of us being ready and poised to share, to not say, no, no thanks. That's not my assignment. That's not my role really realize we're all in this together. Don't let it become a scapegoat. And so as the worship team comes, I'm going to invite them to come to lead us in a time of worship. We know from this passage that the early church leaders, they're not saying that only they or the special assigned folk, apostles, prophets, they're not saying that only they can be involved in sharing and ministering or, or prayer. But I really believe the key here they're showing us is by the power of the Holy Spirit to work smarter, to minister smarter, and not harder. Resting on his empowerment, on his leading, and not of our own flesh. Because the Bible says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so I want to encourage us all this afternoon as, we've been, as we pondered these things, work within your wheelhouse. Like the early followers, work within that which God has called you to, what he has blessed you to do, because each of us, D.W., Jess, and Ian, Isaiah, Brad, Jim, Catherine even, and Liam, we've all been given grace to minister in different ways. And they are all important. Amen? They all matter. They all matter. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, we're reminded of this. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took captives captive, and he gave gifts to people. But what does ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he gave 
some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. And all for this purpose, verse 12 is so key, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. A stature measured by Christ's fullness. I have to tell you, as the worship team begins to play, I'm so thankful for this measure of faith, this grace that we have to minister as God has called us to do, as he's called us to do. Paul said this in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. And he's really setting up a home run here in verse three. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching if exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Here we see the leaders of the early church, they're living by example. They're being generous. They're continuing to exhort while also leading. They've diligently acknowledged the problem and they're diligently addressing the issue by still showing mercy and cheerfulness for the widows in need. Let's be encouraged not to just brush it off because maybe it's something we don't want to deal with. Maybe it's something we don't want to necessarily focus our time with. Maybe it's not one of those glamorous things of being in the faith. And you can fill in the gaps. You can, you can realize what some of those things might be in your life. But realize this, it all pays off. It's all important. Look at verse 7. It says, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. A large group of priests became obedient to the faith. You gotta admit, you gotta love it. People are always watching. And how we respond to the issue, how we respond to the problem matters. And when we respond like Christ responded, where we gathered amongst him an inner circle of believers to entrust the message of the gospel, we too can delegate like Christ. We too can look around, do the right thing, and realize those in which God has gifted and suited for various ministry purposes and focuses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we look to these pages of history,
of your early followers that we can glean wisdom. We can glean understanding and how to address matters that are of the utmost importance of all different shapes and sizes. Holy Spirit, lead us. Guide us to be ministers of your word, faithful in prayer, but also to administrate and care for those that you put in our circle, those who you put around us. Help us to cheer each other on, to bring each other into the circle, to pull out the chair so that everyone has a seat at the table. We all belong to your, the, your body, that you're the head. We want to follow after you, to walk after you with our hearts on fire. Help us to be intentional in all that we do by the power and leading of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>